0: This is Trepwire Week in Review for the week ending December 22nd, 2023. I'm Haley Keene with Trep, a data, modeling, and analytics firm for the CMBS, commercial real estate, and CLO markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Lonnie Hendry, Chief Product Officer. Other than a brief stumble on Wednesday, it has been another good week for investors. There was the painful sell-off midweek, but stocks continued to rally. And in a topic of great interest to commercial real estate owners, landlords, and brokers, interest rates continued to fall, and risk premiums once again contracted. Manis, how do we feel going into the last week of the year?
1: I think we're feeling much more positive than we were eight weeks ago. I think that I think the pain of the last eighteen months has left many in our industry chastened, believing that you know there's another leg down, where there's more negative headlines in multifamily and office and so forth. And that very well could be true. But with uh, lending levels at 150 basis points below where they were in October, spreads compressing, property selling, even uh, if they're coming in at between 10 and 40% below where they last sold, the fact that things are, are transacting is a sign that the economy, the CRE economy is still moving. Um, I, I've mentioned this many times over the years that the further you get away from a crisis, the less likely it will be that the crisis metastasizes into something more troubling. We're now nine months post Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, every month that goes by Silicon Valley Bank. The, their demise should mean that banks are getting a little bit more loose in terms of making loans that are not slow walking things, or so you would hope. We're now 18 months beyond peak inflation. And when you think about that, for borrowers who haven't been slammed by interest rate cap issues and falling DSCR yet, you know, there's hope that they never will. Um, If they haven't given up on the property yet, if they haven't been victim of a capital call thus far, there's a chance that maybe they won't. That being said, we feel better going into the end of the year, but we don't feel great. We know that there'll be more negative headlines, there'll be more problems, but we can only hope that 2024 is better than 2023, and as we enter the last week of December, that's that's how I feel right now.
2: Yeah, I would agree with you, Manus. Uh, Stephen and I talked on the Market Pulse webinar this week. There's a lot of reasons for early optimism heading into 24, but you know the counter to that is just that the stress moves slow, and there's a lot of pent up distress in the system that hasn't fully played itself out. So, you know, you're optimistic that with the fed's pivot in in tone with them you know basically saying three rate cuts are coming with consumer spending um you know holding strong that those you know maybe set us up for a really productive 2024 it's really interesting as i was listening to you talk and kind of like putting my thoughts together that we're like four years post covid at this point like heading into 24 it just seems like yesterday that we were all locked down and didn't know what was going to happen and now looking back on it we're four years effectively past that crisis and the economy is really still just kind of dealing with the actions that were taken both positive and negative through that cycle and so it'll be really interesting to see you know how CRE deals with this in 24 i mean i think there's some some tailwind that can make this positive but i also think there's still a lot of stuff with student loan repayment i saw a report this week that said a large number of folks with student loans didn't make their October or November uh, monthly payments. And here we are sitting in December that I don't think that's been fully baked into the numbers yet. So it'll be interesting to see where we're at. Had the Fed come out and said, no, rate cuts higher for longer means 24. I think we'd be having a much different discussion today. And I've just, you know, kind of a, a pulse on the market through Twitter and some of the other social feeds. You definitely feel from the brokerage community that there's some momentum heading into 24 that we haven't felt for the last 18 months or so, and so I think from that perspective, whether it it's just perception and and maybe doesn't turn into reality will, remains to be seen. But I would say at least at this point, everyone is looking at 2024 with an optimistic uh, lens, and there's some good reason. Like we we have consumer confidence it uh, climbed to a five month high, so it was at 110, which is a you know a fresh sign of optimism about the economy. I know. We've talked about that really dipping at some uh, point over the last 12 months or so. If you look at the Fed's target numbers for or forecasts for 2024 inflation, they're uh, on record as saying they see PCE falling to 2.4%, which is right in line with their 2% target. You know, if you look at uh, the European Central Bank, you know, they're basically doing a lot of the same stuff we're doing. They held interest rates steady um, and they're revising their, their growth forecast, but but effectively, you know, having, you know, hopefully some optimistic perspective into the future. So I'd say all in all, there's a lot of stuff that could go wrong. But if you're asking me today, I feel much more positive than I would have a few weeks ago.
1: Yeah, to be precise with my comments, nobody should be taking this to mean that I believe we're going back, you know, in next year, we'll be going back to conditions of 2021 or early 2022. Um, This is not the impression I'm trying to give off when I'm leaning towards is maybe we see lending issuance uh, the velocity of money sales transactions leasing transactions and so forth improve by 20 percent over what was a really dismal 2023 it, you know that that is what feels right to me I'm um, going back to my remark about being 18 months away from Peak inflation and now we're three or four months past what appears to be the peak in short-term interest rates, we don't think that there's another interest rate hike coming, that the flip side of being 18 months past peak inflation and three months past the most recent rate hike is every month that goes by, you're one month closer to a 25 basis point cut in SOFR. And when that first one comes, I think you're going to feel this extraordinary exhale among multifamily developers property owners that use floating rate debt that are going to see through no other reason other than the fact that their rates are resetting lower you know a five or uh 10 percent uptick in their dscr right the 0.7 maybe goes to 0.8 or 0.85 and then if we were to get another one in july or august right then you're clawing your way back to 1.0 x and you know, I think by the time we get to February and we feel like these rate cuts are uh, getting closer to imminent, I think these borrowers will start to feel like the worst is behind them. And certainly by then, I do think that the property owners will say, "Well, if I've come this far, you know, I I, I think uh, dawn is coming and it's 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 going to be okay." And I certainly hope so.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think. I think the the ones that can survive until then should be fine, you know, post. But I think, unfortunately, there's still going to be that that group of, of deals that just based on timing or based on purchase price or based on whatever, when they got in with the floating rate debt and then the cycle happened, it's just going to be too much and overpower them. We did put together some mortgage maturity information. So just to kind of give some perspective for the listeners there. If you look at, and this is from the uh, the Fed's flow of fund data, but if we look at the universal commercial mortgages, there's about 2.81 trillion worth of mortgages coming due between now and 2028. And so if you look at 2023, there's about 270 billion, I think that was coming due uh, on the bank side. And that number goes up to around 278 billion um, next year. And so there's not a huge reprieve. CMBS is going to be less. The 2024 maturities um, are less in tw- than they were in 23. Life co's and the GSEs are all relatively the same. It's in- it's interesting though. The banks uh, actually have a larger amount of maturities coming due in 24, and that steadily increases through 28. Um, but I think that's probably a good thing in the sense that smaller banks have more flexibility with some of these than than the CMBS or some of the more rigid lending sources. And so hopefully, you know, to your point, Manus, the extend and pretend, you know, plays out in a productive way for both the lenders and the borrowers.
1: Yeah. Well, one thing, you know, I'll throw out there to get to get your opinion on is we've seen this in other property types. We don't see it much in multifamily, but we've seen it in office and retail and others is that the foreclosure slash default, uh, no default is not necessarily binary. You do see these these hybrids where uh, equity is diluted, but a partner is brought in to allow the original owners to keep the property with a, a smaller stake. Do you see that as a bonafide exit strategy or correction strategy for uh, some of these property owners that that got way out over their skis in the last two years.
2: I would say in certain situations we're gonna see that. I think for a lot of these you know people that bought at the peak, there's just they're too far. I mean, like the equity is completely wiped. There's really nothing left to dilute to try to to come in i it would be interesting, and maybe we could ask the listeners to give us some inbound info if you've been part of any of those transactions of like rescue capital or or partnering with struggling operators to keep assets afloat, because that's that's kind of a really opaque part of the marketplace. I mean, we've seen a couple of assumption deals get done. We've read and, and talked about, you know, maybe some capital partners coming in and saving certain assets, but on the whole, there's not a lot of visibility into that, so I I and with you, Manus, in the sense of like, I'd love to know, you know, is that a viable option going forward? I would say it probably the chances of that being viable are increased given where we think the rates are going to be in the next couple of quarters uh, compared to where they've been the last last 12 months. You know, what we saw it after the great financial crisis, and this is a little bit of a history
1: lesson, is that, um, you know, perhaps you had a a $1.8 billion loan, which is what you had on. Um, 666 Fifth Avenue, which was a big office, trophy office tower in Midtown Manhattan. Um, the loan was bifurcated in A note and a B note, and a, a tranche was put in between the A note and a B note that gave the owner a little bit of equity. It, it forced them to have a little bit of skin left in the game so that if they could grow the value uh, above the balance of the A note, which is usually close to what the value of the property was at the time, they would participate in the upside. And it kept the owners engaged, knowing that they could turn a profit on some of those deals. And what we saw was they were able to use that sliver of equity to attract other partners to help these situations muddle through. If I remember correctly, 666 uh, Fifth was Kushner. And I think he brought in Vornado to, to help him retain part of the property, but also bring in that rescue capital. Uh, But that was all conditioned on a period of time where the creation of A-notes and B-notes, the bifurcation of loans, was happening very often. We see very little of that uh, in this wave, and that's probably what it would take, some kind of creative way of restructuring loans, because I think you're spot on. There is no equity left to dilute in many of these cases. So uh, I think 2024 will be very interesting. I think it will be interesting in that there will be setbacks with negative headlines, uh, properties will uh, revert to lenders that we didn't see coming. The office segment will be filled with negative uh, headlines, uh, probably in areas that um, even surprise us outside of San Francisco and New York. Uh, the multifamily, there'll be some bruises that go, uh, you know, more beyond flesh wounds. You know, to use the Monty Python line. By and large, I do think w- we do better in twenty twenty four than we do in, did in twenty twenty three. Agreed.
0: So let's jump into our property type segment. You mentioned some of the office news, but we have some more stories from this week that we wanted to cover.
1: Yes, we had a lot of office. They they run the gamut of a lot of different types of stories. It's called this a potpourri of office stories. Not a lot of packaging them into certain sub-segments because they're kind of all over the map. Uh, first one, a green shoot, I would say. We had a trading alert about this a couple of days ago. Uh, the Seagram building in Midtown Manhattan uh, also known as as 375 Park has been refinanced the story was originally broken by the commercial observer this loan was to mature in May of 2023 uh, even though the owners had done a really yeoman's job of rebuilding the rent roll pushing occupancy from i think 70 or 75% back up into the mid 90s conditions were such that they couldn't refinance the loan. the loan is split between a single-asset CMBS deal and a conduit deal. That loan should now be retired and uh, replaced by a new, if I'm not mistaken, $1.1 billion new financing. The Commercial Observer article notes that about $350 million in new equity will be provided by Meslender JVP Management. So here's a situation where this kind of property was on the ropes, RFR, the owner, was able to sign leases totally almost 400,000 square feet in 2022, fought to keep the property. And this certainly will be a happy ending for people that own those 2013 bonds. And certainly for the owners, even though it looks like their equity will be diluted, they get to keep the property. So good for them. Uh, Also from the commercial observer, a $33 million loan on 385 Fifth Avenue, has been extended for three years. This particular loan made up more than 12% of the collateral behind a CMBX 7 issue. And, uh, you know, just another sign of life here that um, special servicers cutting a deal that will push this maturity out uh, to 2026. Good news there. This is an next, it is kind of a mixed green one. FEMA has announced it's going to move its DC offices in 2013. I guess it's probably more crabgrass than, than mixed green. The crabgrass part of it is FEMA will be leaving Federal Center Plaza, which backs $130 million CMBS loan. And in fact, that loan makes up 54% of the remaining collateral behind a 2013 deal. FEMA has more than 400,000 square feet. It's an enormous piece of space in Washington. And and what makes it crabby, this particular story, is that they're not moving to another location that is privately owned that may accrue to the benefit of an office REIT or a lender behind a CMBS loan. They're moving to a property that is already owned by um, the US government, by the GSA. So some bad news there. Uh, That was the Washington Business Journal. Uh, More from the Washington Business Journal, Portals One, which was a Oreo asset in DC on Maryland Avenue, sold for only $26 million. This was a huge discount to the appraised value of last year of almost $88 million. Before the great financial crisis, this particular asset has been out since 2006. The property was valued at 235 million. So a one-time $235 million asset selling, according to the Washington Business Journal, for just $26 million. In Seattle, another story about a big tech firm not renewing a lease. This comes from the Puget Sound Business Journal. Amazon will not renew its 209,000-square-foot lease at 1809th Avenue. Uh, I believe the lease ends in 2025. The Amazon lease follows a prior story about Amazon not uh, renewing in a nearby location and Microsoft having more than 2 million square feet of space where it will not be Renewing its leases. So, a lot going on there. Very quickly, a couple of things that came out today in the Raleigh, Durham area. Lionstone Investments has sold Midtown Plaza for $133 million to Crescent Real Estate of Fort Worth, Texas. This is at 305 Church Street. Terrific outcome there. The property was appraised, assessed. You know, these assessments don't always mean much. You're not sure what the the method of assessment is jurisdiction by jurisdiction, but at least on the books of the Raleigh-Durham Assessors, this thing was valued at $125 million. So uh, a really nice sale there for the 330,000-square-foot office. Brokers start your engines. In San Francisco, Barrings is looking to sell a 20-story office tower at 33 New Montgomery Street. It's looking for $80 million for the asset uh, it's a 240,000 square foot building that will be listed next month. Sadly, the price is 46% less than what Bearings paid for it uh, about 10 years ago. That story comes from the real deal. That's all I have on the office space.
2: Yeah, so that was a nice rundown of, of where we're at across multiple stories, man As I wanted to circle back rather than go through deal by deal on this one. The stuff in Washington, D.C., I think, is about to get really interesting. So, we had put together some data. Bloomberg ran a story uh, citing some of our information around percentage of office loans that are criticized using our taller data set. And Stephen and I talked through this on the market pulse webinar this week. but Washington DC has surpassed San Francisco in terms of criticized loan share for the office market. So it's above 70% threshold at this point, just edging over San Francisco. But if you peel it back a little bit more and start digging through the data, Washington actually has potential to be significantly worse than San Francisco. So I think for San Francisco, we've we've uh, all seen they've stolen the headlines all of 2023. They have quality of life issues. There's no shortage of, of challenges there, both from a retailer perspective and the office space. But we started to see transactions, we've maybe hit a, a trough or a bottom in some parts of, of that office market in D.C. On the flip side, you mentioned this, and what brought it to top of mind for me is the FEMA stuff. The GSA is primarily the largest tenant in that marketplace, and with the lax work-from-home environment, you're really starting to see some cracks there. And if we see activity like FEMA go a little more widespread, or maybe the GSA starts to say, we're going to... You know, not a pro have appropriations for funding for these leases. We're going to get out of these leases, or we're going to right size these leases, or we're going to just vacate the buildings altogether. This could get really bad really quickly. So, just so I, just to kind of give perspective for the listeners, the last quarter of our taller data uh, preceding today's discussion was second quarter of 23. DC had about 55% of their offices with criticized uh, risk ratings. Fast forward to the end of Q3 23. As I mentioned, that number goes above seventy percent. It was a really large mover in the space. San Francisco is still there at seventy percent, so I'm not in any way saying San Francisco is in the clear here. But DC, I think, if you just look at the government concentration risk that's there, it has some real headwinds. You know, they're that, that, that going to be dealt with over the next couple of years. Want to get your thoughts on that, Manus?
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that in San Francisco's case, I, I think the quality of life issues can be addressed. They have the amazing tailwind of tremendous geography, a beautiful location. It's one of my favorite cities in normal times. I think with the right leadership, people will flock back to San Francisco over time. I think that the fact that it's it's so heavily dominated by the private sector is another tailwind that uh, it's a beautiful location. I think Washington, D.C. has 90% of the quality of life issues that San Francisco has at this point, it has the additional headwind of, I, I think government workers are, you know, just like call center workers or servicers, you, you can, or insurers, you you can do your job from just about anywhere, which makes it less uh, critical for you to get back to office. I think that will be a persistent headwind. And I think while Washington, D.C. is a beautiful city when you see things like the lincoln memorial and the washington monument and all the other beautiful landmarks there it's a lovely place to visit but i would still put it a you know a a a distance away from the quality of the geography of san francisco so i i I don't disagree i think washington may end up uh, pulling up the rear before all is said and done in the office space
2: Yeah, and if you look at Seattle, it's the third highest. So it's Seattle, San Francisco, and D.C., and you covered a lot of stuff uh, with some of the challenges with Seattle. I think different risks potentially, but they just have a high concentration with a couple of really large tenants that just occupy millions of square foot of space that have now started downsizing. You know, hopefully for them, they can get that turned around too. But it's, it's really interesting if you look across four or five of the major, you know, like to your point, really great tourist attractions, great cities to live in. Generally, over the last few years, have seen a rapid, you know, descent of of people not wanting to stay there and moving to other places, and workers not wanting to go into the office, and so a lot of downstream implications for those markets too, where the office uh, demise really has trickled into retail, which is pretty obvious. But the the secondary was the multifamily, where you're not able to command those high urban rents when people aren't forced to go into their urban office. So um, we'll see how that plays itself out over the coming years as well.
1: Yeah, I, I don't see anybody fulfilling the spatial demands that the big six or seven tech companies had over the last 10 years. It's People are saying AI companies perhaps, and, and yes, that may ultimately come about or the tech companies reversing the giving back of space because they want to build a bigger AI presence. But I, I think that's a way way off and I don't see either the reversal of what Amazon and Microsoft have been doing anytime soon, nor do I see any engines of absorption coming down the path in the near term. And that's, that's discouraging. But, you know, we're in this process of creative destruction where offices have to be repositioned. They have to see their... Uh, capital structure, their valuations change. At some point, there's a buyer for these, right? There's some point where maybe maybe rents have to go from $60 a square foot for Class B in New York to 35 The value has to be cut by 60%. But at that point, it becomes economically viable. We will get there, but there'll be a lot of bumps along the way.
0: Let's turn to the hotel market.
1: Yes, let's go to the hotel market, which far more positive signs there for that market which i'm happy to report the first one comes from the nashville business journal a noble investment group bought the holiday Inn express nashville paying 82 million for the asset the property is a 287 key hotel at 920 broadway sales price represents about 285 per key Uh, the good news on this particular sale is that the property backs a big 64 million dollar cmbs loan which should now be defeased. Um, that loan is part of CMBX 10 and CMBX 11. The modest downside to this is we all consider Nashville a great market, but in this case, the property was sold at a, a pretty hefty discount. This property was acquired in 2019 uh, for $118 million, So the $82 million sale represents a, a big, big discount to that number, something We're used to seeing in New York and Chicago and San Francisco, not something we've seen very often in in Nashville. Uh, In New York, uh, another sign of life here, the McSam Hotel Group has sold three Manhattan properties, totaling 207 million. The properties are a 162-room Hyatt on 39th Street, a 165-key Marriott Le Meridien at 292 Fifth Avenue, and the 230 key Double Tree by Hilton on West 51st Street. The numbers there, the Hyatt 316K per room. The property last sold for 31.9 million in 2016. The Marriott Meridian, $464,000 per key. McSam purchased it in 2017 for 42 million. And the double tree sold for 79 million or 343K per key. So um, adding these numbers up for the last three sales on these things, the $206.5 million that McSam got for this looks to be slightly above what they acquired them for in 2016 and 2017. It looks like the trio were sold in aggregate for, let's call it $170 million five, six, seven years ago. So this is the type of story we haven't, reported very much. New York hotels being sold for a premium to their last uh, transaction. So in this case, three of them. Lastly, Cranes is reporting that the 381 key Residence in Chicago, which is on LaSalle Street, has been refinanced. A $113 million loan was made by an affiliate of the Union Labor Life Insurance Company. The developer, the owner of that property is uh, Michael Reshke's Prime Group. So here we have a situation where money is changing hands in terms of property acquisitions and refinancings are getting done. So I uh, really enjoyed telling those stories.
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting on the Nashville side um, to go back to that one quickly, man. Is I read this week where it's not just the hotel sector that's starting to have a little bit of slowdown, the multifamily side of the house has started to see significant increases in rental concessions and other enticements to get people there. And so I think Nashville's dealing with that kind of a sweetheart city that everyone loved, tons of new migration, a lot of new inventory though hitting the ground. And when you have properties that are older like the the Holiday Inn um, Express, you know, sold in 2019, but hasn't been renovated since 2015, so even though they had strong occupancy last year at 76%, the market's showing that it's just not worth what it was in that previous deal. And then a I, I, quick story, I stayed at that marriott La Meridian off of Fifth um, in New York one time. And, you know, hotel rooms in New York are notoriously small. This hotel takes it to a whole new level. Um, it was so small in the bathroom, there was no shower curtain, there was no shower door, it was just an opening Uh, and the opening was so small, they obviously didn't feel the need to actually block the water coming out. So it was an interesting stay when you open the door to go in the room, you couldn't get in the bathroom. And I'm surprised to see, I mean, that's a pretty hefty price tag, super nice high-end restaurant, but, um, not going to be staying there anytime soon. Way too small.
0: Unlock a historic mall investment opportunity with Spinoso Real Estate Group's proprietary platform. Their expert team excels in identifying unique opportunities and conducts rigorous due diligence. With a proven track record of operating over 86 malls and 74 million square feet, their turnkey operating platform is poised for strategic execution. Partner with Spinoso and seize this institutional historic opportunity. To learn more, connect with the Spinoso team at the Crefcy Miami Conference this January. And we have a few retail stories. If you're a Trep client, you would have seen a bunch of these trading alerts that we're talking about this week.
1: Yes, uh, we've put out a lot of research this week. It's it's a funny time of year. Usually by this time of the year, we're starting to see sales reports and other things dry up. You you worry about the last two weeks of December that what are you going to possibly talk about on a podcast or in your research? And it turns out this has been a really good week for transactions that have taken place across all property types. And it's good to see uh, it may be tied to, you know, these lower rates that we've seen coming in. I, I got a, I can't remember it was a LinkedIn or a Twitter remark and it's going to elude me. I think it was from Michael who was talking about a new nine figure loan that he had been working on for, for quite some time. And he just talked about the serendipity of it all that, This thing was supposed to close, I don't know, mid-October, early November, something like that. Uh, There were a couple of snags, and lo and behold, when they had to lock the rate in 45 days later or or 60 days later, the borrower had this huge benefit of saving 125 basis points. And I wish I could give credit where credit is due, because this was a a really interesting story where somebody – you know, it's kind of like finding a $20 bill on the on the street when you're walking down the street. You know, this 100 basis point drop in interest rates. I don't think anybody saw this coming, and yet here we are. And In this particular case, the borrower was, you know, it's like found money. Going through our stories here, uh, first one is a trading alert. The Solana Mall, which was recently acquired by Spinoza Real Estate Group, at the time of the sale in October, uh, there was talk about the sale being including a loan assumption and a maturity extension. Uh, That data came out recently. The acquisition now includes a 12-month maturity extension, pushing the maturity out to late 2024, two 12-month extension options on top of this. This backs uh, a CMBX loan of considerable size. And this is not only good news for investors in a 2012 deal, uh, it's also a, a... a vote of confidence by spinoso that they can grow the value of this property which was once valued at 109 million in 2012 uh, and later lowered to 88 million in 2022 i believe another story here kimco uh, sold a retail center in san jose for 33 million uh, brixton capital was the buyer uh, the property is known as monterey plaza 183 000 square foot property on monterey highway in san jose uh, a decline in value over the last uh, 17 years uh, kimco bought it in 2006 for 51 million parting ways with it for 33 million so uh, a little bit of a, a mixed green um, the property lost walmart at its anchor a couple of years ago so i guess the green side of this is that even having lost the anchor of this thing still gets a 33 million dollar price tag from the commercial observer which was on fire this week by the way Um, In Loudoun County, Virginia, the Dulles Town Center Mall has been sold for $46 million. Another case of a shopping mall just getting a nice price. These aren't the $10 and $15 million numbers that we were seeing Amdar and Cohan buy properties for a couple months ago. We're starting to see prices firm up uh, in this area. And we saw another one that broke just a few minutes ago. This is from the Indy Star. They reported that Circle Center Mall... In near Indianapolis has sold for $85 million. This was a property that once backed a CMBS uh, loan. I think the property was once worth about $140 million. Um, So real decline in value, yes, but somebody paying $85 million uh, to buy and probably redevelop this building uh, is nothing to sneeze sneeze at. That's real money, even for a guy like Lonnie, $85 million. And uh, (laughs) so we're happy to see that. So some good things happening in the retail space just like there was in the hotel space.
2: Yeah, a couple of quick comments um uh, it's on the uh on the story there in um in the Dulles Town Center. The article references that it has been purchased by a local multimillionaire. So, you know, that guy not even named or that woman not even named, but just, you know, named as local multimillionaire is pretty good pretty good spot if you can get there. On the Carmen Spinoso deal, I mean, I think that's great news and like what we know from our podcast with him is his team's going to be in there leasing that place up for the next twelve months, and hopefully go into a more permanent refi situation before they have to execute those extension options. Um, I did want to mention a couple of other statistics just broadly on the retail space. We had pulled some uh, of the CMBS retail delinquency broken out by subtype, and so just to your point, man, is the retail sector has been really, really strong. If you look at neighborhood retail. As a subset, it's sitting at just 3.3% delinquent. Super regional malls at 3.6. Community shopping centers at 4.4. The regional malls are where we're seeing the highest, which is a, a, you know expected at this point about 15.9. But when we report that overall delinquency rate at around 6.5%, it's really heavily weighted on that regional mall delinquency. If you look at those other subtypes, the community shopping centers, super regional, and neighborhood retail, all performing really, really strongly.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things where you're hoping that the, you know, baby is not being thrown out with the bathwater. You know, sometimes would-be investors think retail and they bucket it all into one thing and all they think about is the mall space. But to your point that those 3% numbers that you were mentioning in some of the subsegments, that's well below the Trump headline number of almost 6%. And really, the retail number is just being pulled higher by those malls. And, I, and I've said this, you know, many times before that even the malls, so many of them are, are muddling through. I think when this book is written by somebody, I'm not sure who's going to write the uh, the mall book. Maybe it'll be Michael Lewis. You know, he'll follow up the Big Short with a mall uh, study. I, I think people will come out of this saying we thought losses would have been bigger. You know, if we if you had pulled us in. 2017 we would have thought the the story would have been uh like the kodak camera that you know it would have been completely wiped out and that's far from uh what is happening i gotta throw one more story in here though i I gotta get your reaction to this i thought this was like an onion story and and maybe it's bad data i don't really know but several people were reporting including the real deal this week that uh, a building was acquired in New York's Upper East Side for $425 million. So Prada was the buyer. They're also a tenant in it. This property is at uh, 724 Fifth Avenue. So I guess Prada has the street-level retail. It's a 12-story building uh, in total, but only 65,000 square feet. So at $425 million, it's almost double where this property sold for in 2011. Just an extraordinary number. a square foot. I had people pinging me yesterday via email and on Twitter and on LinkedIn. This can't be real. This has to be a Babylon Bee or an onion story. And I said, all I could do is say what I see in the newspapers, this, this is the number, but just a, a mind boggling print there at a time where street level retail is still not anywhere close to where it was seven or eight years ago in New York.
2: Yeah, this is one of those where you need uh you need some Paul Harvey the rest of the story or uh you need to talk to the folks at Eastill that uh, brokered this this trade because they're uh they're sitting really pretty here in the holiday season if those numbers are uh, are true because it's uh, $6500 a square foot crazy time. But hey, look, uh great news for the folks that uh that traded out of that. I think SL Green and Stonehenge Partners, they paid about $223 million for it back in 2011. Pretty good trade for them if if these numbers are accurate.
0: And moving on to multifamily, we saw a lot of sales across the country this week.
2: Yeah, just more green shoots in
1: terms of, you know, the velocity of money for things selling north of $50 million, or in some cases, uh, north of $100 million, continues. And it's part of the reason that Uh, In the open, I said I think 2024 will be better than 2023. So without further ado, I'll run through these. In Charlotte, Widener Apartment Homes paid almost $82 million for the retreat at McAlpin Creek. Uh, This is a 400-unit complex. The sales price equates to about $204,000 per unit. The property was sold by Waterton of Chicago, which had paid – 60 million for this in 2018. So this is a, you know, basically 33% improvement in value over the course of five years. The story comes from the Charlotte Business Journal. Uh, In Margate, Florida, Bar Investment Group paid 93 million for Pinebrook Point. This is a 394 unit property. The sales price goes for 236K per unit. Uh, The story was broken by the Commercial Observer. This particular property, Again, substantial, substantial value improvement. This uh, property sold in 2017 for just under 70 million. So you're talking about $23 million. You know, you're really talking again about another 30% price appreciation over six years to get this this property sold, wonderful news. The property was purchased with the assistance of a, a $50 million loan by Bank United. Two stories now from Cranes, both in Chicago Union West at 939 West Washington Boulevard goes to Tishman Spire for $128 million. That's almost $360K per unit. The property is a 357 unit uh, asset. Also in Chicago and also by Cranes, John Buck sold 311 apartments. That's at 311 West Illinois uh, in Chicago for $76 million. That equates to 310K per unit. This is a 245-unit complex. So nothing but high-priced sales in three different markets for the multifamily segment.
2: Yeah, I think it bodes well for quality multifamily assets. We've talked a lot about some of the negative headlines for multifamily, but I think that's just a small subset of the overall asset class. I mean, every week we could do 15 or 20 of these Mm -hmm. nice, green shoot stories across different markets in the U.S. on the multi-side, especially, like you said, north of 50 million. I mean, these are not small transactions, you know, 76, 93 million, 82 million. Uh, Those are some some big boy numbers, Um, and it's good to see. So hopefully we'll see even more of those in 24, and uh, we can, you know, go back to being super excited about rent growth and occupancy gains and other things across the multifamily sector.
0: And then we have two stories for industrial this week.
2: We are really running the gamut, aren't we? We're
1: getting through all five property types that almost never happens uh, in the podcast. A little inside baseball for our listeners, there's usually a pile of leftovers of things that we never get to each week that uh, we try to carry over or write in our daily 7 a.m. newsletter, which, by the way, if you haven't signed up for yet, you should. You know, I think we're about a thousand people have requested access to this and now we're getting it at 730 in the morning. And we're so excited about that. Orrest and Stephen Bushbaum and others working really hard to put out some great uh, data there every week, and it's it's free. So uh, come and get it. Uh, in the industrial space, for those that you, those of you that love industrial, um, in the Miami area, Ponte Gadea, um, which is the family office of Amancia Ortega, paid 113 million for a nearly 900,000 square foot cold storage facility. In the miami suburb of hialeah that story comes from commercial observer the property is fully leased to freeze pack and the sales price equates to about 129 bucks a square foot and in um, the portland area in beaverton uh, bkm capital paid 67 million for a property a five building property at 217 Distribution Center. The properties in total span a little over 450,000 square feet in Beaverton. The sales price uh, equates to almost 150 bucks a square foot. The seller was a Kansas City life insurance company, and the reporting comes from the djc djcoregon.com. In total, the weighted average term of the remaining lease is three and a half years, and the rental rates are about 20% less than Uh, prevailing rates in the market right now.
2: Yeah, that seems to be the story on all of these industrial deals is that uh, they're getting premium prices for assets with shorter weighted average lease terms uh, because those rental rates that are in place are significantly less than market. So that one had Nike, Rexel, Blue Ocean as tenants, as as well as the Beaverton Police Department. So uh, good to see that story. And it's, yeah, nice to have, you know, the ability to talk about all the asset classes today. So the major ones. We even have a self-storage, so a little... Manus gave a little insider baseball. Looks like this week's self-storage might make the, uh, the chopping block and on to next week.
0: So a few programming notes. Somehow it's already time for C Miami. So as a reminder, the TREP team will be in Florida January 7th through 10th for the Sea Conference. This is the CRE Finance Council event that takes place every year. If you're a TREP client, you can come meet your account managers there meet some of our team that works on our products or solutions, the podcast team. So reach out to us if you want to meet up. We'll be wandering around. Lonnie will be speaking. We'll be in room 440. And we'll also be passing out our year-end magazine. So stay tuned for that. This is a yearly wrap-up of all the data and content that we put out. We'll round up data around delinquencies, maturities, different property-type stories. And this is in partnership with our sister company's commercial real estate Direct. So stay tuned for that and turning to shout outs. We had a lot of you still requesting access to our newsletter. So we'll run through that quickly. Christian N said, great podcast. Zach O thanked us for the weekly content. Simon L really enjoys the Trep podcast and was interested in our office data, Robert H Mark L is a regular listener. Adam M. is a longtime listener, and this was his first time calling. He said, while I agree that any loan extension is good news versus the lender demanding payment in full, is there any chance you can mention the terms of some of these extensions? So we'll make sure anytime we have that, we'll throw that in there for you, Adam. He appreciates the work we do and is right in Dallas, so you might have to go visit him, Lonnie. Mo L. is currently getting his Master's in Real Estate Development from Columbia and has is really excited that he found the podcast. Edward K. is a huge fan, and he loves learning about the various sectors in real estate, so this is a good episode for you today, Edward. Kayvon R. just listened to the recent episode and really enjoyed it, requested access to our newsletter. And our friend Kurt A., when you brought up that story from Bloomberg, Lonnie, that reminded me of Kurt, and he actually reached out. He said, The good news is that San Francisco is officially not the worst office investment market in the country. So thank you, TREP, for sharing that data. So we'll see you, Kurt, down in Miami, and we wish you happy holidays as well. Andrew G. is a senior director at a brokerage and really thanks us for putting on this show. Tom I. says TREP is the best high-frequency commercial real estate data out there. Charlie F. thanks us a lot. He's a broker in the Baltimore-Washington corridor for the past 25 years and loves the podcast. He said he's been listening since the very beginning. Austin Y. is a junior at the University of Chicago studying business and aspiring to enter the CRE industry. So we're glad that you reached out to us and you're using us as a resource. And then Connor S. on Twitter, he's a Bloomberg contributor. And he said that the first 20 minutes of last week's episode was a useful perspective on how Siri folks were thinking about the Fed decision last week. So thanks, Connor, for listening and sharing your takeaways.
1: I bailed early last week, Haley, and I want to make sure we got this one in. You could run if we did. Did we give the happy birthday to Mordecai?
0: We did get Mordecai that happy birthday shout-out. Right. So excellent. <laughs> it's like a birthday these... month now for Mordecai. We'll keep yeah, it going. Right.
1: <laughs> I get these uh these pings on email and uh, and and LinkedIn and so forth. And I know I forget things. I know that there's people I need to to answer and T-shirts I need to get out. But uh, I wanted to make sure we got Mordecai in there. So thank you for that.
0: Yes. And the last one here, Lonnie, you finally got casted for your movie. So Thomas K. on Twitter said that Leonardo DiCaprio should play you in the, what are we calling this, CNBS takeover movie, the tripwire movie?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure what we call it, but yeah, Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio, okay, like that's way higher than what I was shooting for. So, you know, obviously not going to happen, but if it did, it would be pretty sweet.
1: <laughs> well, it sounds like another call to action. It sounds like now we need people to tell us what the title ought to be.
0: And with that, we'll close. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or just a comment, send an email to podcast at trip.com and subscribe to the Tripwire Podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well.
1: All right.